welcome to The Progression Puzzle, the podcast that provides you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. I'm your host, Michael Barrington Hibbert, and across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a variety of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from the world of finance, banking, professional services, and beyond to understand how their progression puzzles have pieced together. From words of wisdom to pointers on progression, we'll be equipping you with the skills, practices, and learnings necessary, not only to navigate corporate environments, but to thrive within them and ultimately pursue your professional goals. My guest today is Jeffrey Williams, who is the Global Head of Diversity, Equality and Inclusion for Dr. Martins. Jeffrey has various accolades to his name, including appearing alongside Vice President Kamala Harris and New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on the global diversity list in 2020. I'm sure you can add my name to that list when he does future podcasts. He is also an award-winning filmmaker, publisher of short stories, and founder of social enterprise Rocking Your Teens. Jeffrey will be talking to us about his role, his career journey, his thoughts on DNI in the workplace, and much, much, much more. Jeffrey, hello, and welcome to the Progression Puzzle. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's my pleasure. So, Jeffrey, you are the Global Head of Diversity, Equality and Inclusion at Dr. Martins. What does that role encapsulate? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> do on a day-to-day basis. It's, there's no kind of standard day in the world of DNI. Uh, you know, there's moments where I am working with our marketing and brand team on some of our activations around say pride or black history month or international women's day i might be with my wider hrlt looking at uh, talent development and how we discuss our talent attraction processes um coaching our leaders and really kind of supporting them to understand how dei is a business driver you know there's yeah there's a variation of things i might be speaking externally doing podcasts like this or sitting on a panel talking about the brands and the work that we're doing in the dni space and then sometimes I might just be sitting there looking at a bunch of data, trying to get my head around our, um, what we look like from a representation um, as an organization. So I think, you know, doing, I will say this to everyone, doing DNI work, there's a multitude of things. There's moments where you're involved in the marketing and mission of the organization. There are times where you're kind of being a bit more strategic. And then there's moments where you really have to influence those around you to, to move the agenda forward. And, and look, you know, 2020 was very much a year of purpose for, for so many and impacted the lives of not just black, but many, many people across the globe to, to become activated when it comes to um, greater equality and inclusion. How has your role changed in the sense of we know DNI has been a buzzword um, for the last decade to 15 years, certainly within the UK, but there seems to be a renewed focus, not just from a policy standpoint, but you mentioned around business drivers and how it fits within ESG and how it becomes more commercialized. How have you seen it pivot in the last 18 months, Jeffrey? Um, I think I've seen it pivot in the way that 
the conversations I am having had completely flipped. So I've been in this space, gosh, for just over a decade now. And I think when I started, it was very much siloed conversations. So it would be, oh, this year we're going to talk about race. This year we're going to talk about gender. And I think now um, the work that I'm doing is very much about the holistic drivers of DNI within your organization. As you said, it's kind of looking at it from that ESG standpoint, looking at it to make sure that we are including a multitude of individuals in our marketing campaigns, in our messaging, in our relationships that we build, in our supply chain. And then I think there's also that nuance of more leaders are seeing it now as a business benefit. They're not seeing it as, oh, it's that nice thing to have in the corner. It's that opportunity. We'll wheel the DNI expert out at the right moment. We'll let them run all of our, you know, kind of key events aligned to International Women's Day, Pride Month. It's more a conversation of how do we embed this into business as usual? And I think I've seen that leaders are running it more. So making my job a little bit easier um, in the sense of the conversations they want to have the insights they want to drive, and also the way they want to drive it forward. So I think that's the shift I've seen. Um, and I think a lot of people reflected and they paused for a moment and they were, because of all the things that were going on at the time, just able to sit back and think, where do I want to go? And I think a lot of people are looking at this as well from their legacy standpoint. So what change can they make in their organisations as you know the influencers to make that decision? How can they turn this around so that their children and their children's children are not facing the same challenges. Okay, that, that's really insightful. And I want to sort of expand a little bit more because you've mentioned around educating, coaching business leaders. And again, let, let's be very open and very transparent. There isn't that representation, certainly looking at it from a UK-centric standpoint, that actually reflects um, the, the wider um, society in terms of leadership roles. So you can look at, and I'm not want to go into specifics about Dr. Marketing's, I'm really keen just to get a sort of generic overview response here. But in terms of educating leaders who have not necessarily activated and necessarily been a, a proponent of increasing diversity, your role must be quite complicated in the sense of you're having to be a coach. You, are you having to use imperial data to back up some of your, your recommendations to be able to get business leaders and marketers across the line to realize that a team that is reflecting on society means greater business returns and also society returns too? I would say not so much now. Um, I think now the conversation I'm having with my colleagues I work with now and those I network with is different but I would say it's, 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 it's this kind of conversation. It's getting people to reflect on their own personal journeys and getting to understand that just because you've reached a certain pinnacle doesn't mean that someone else had the same trajectory and the same journey. I think it's also that piece of being honest with people and saying, okay, so if you say there's just no no female talent, there's no black people in the organization that can sit in a leadership role, getting them to reflect on the fact that in all honesty, people weren't given the opportunities. So we now need to build that. But also maybe what you need to do is pivot in how you are recruiting people because there's talent out there. It's just, do you want to be binary in your approach to what you're doing? So I think it's having those conversations as well. And then for me, I kind of just put lots of history and research in front of people. And I'm probably, um, someone said to me that I was a maverick the other day. I think I just say things as well. So one of my favorite things to say is everyone knows a woman. A lot of people are related to those that are part of the LGBT community. But a lot of people don't have day-to-day -day interactions, human interactions with people of colour. 
And that becomes part of the challenge in doing this DNI work because if, if it's not personal to you, quite a lot of the time it just falls by the wayside. That's fascinating. And, and look, I, I would love to expand on this, and I think we have to do another podcast or actually a book um, around this. Um, so our viewers and listeners, please watch this space. But you've mentioned the word around maverick, and I'm really keen for you to take us back to the beginning because your background from a corporate standpoint, you've mentioned you've been in a DNI space for over a decade, but your background started out in entertainment before shifting into recruitment and HR. So can you just walk walk my viewers and listeners around you know what you did in entertainment, Jeffrey? Uh, so what did I do in entertainment? I um, managed uh, songwriters and DJs and producers um, and recording artists and supported them to get their songs published, uh, record albums. Um, and yeah, so I spent about, gosh, about 10 years doing that in various guises. Uh, I then decided that I'd hit the pinnacle of what I thought I could do in that space or just wasn't as passionate about it. I'm I'm someone that had always wanted to be in the music industry from a very young age. That was my kind of driver. And then once I'd achieved it, it kind of became a moment where I missed being a fan of music and of the artistry and, and wanted to go back there. So I kind of slowly moonwalked away from the work I was doing in that space. Uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And fortunately, I'm surrounded by a multitude of amazing people um, who kind of, you know, ask me questions, challenge me. And one of my friends suggested that I do a, a stint in a recruitment agency that they were working at at the same time. Um, did that for about two years. Um, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't good at it, <laughs> is what I'll say. I'm I'm getting text messages for some of my listeners because they feel they're being shortchanged here. So I know you've got a big role now, Jeffrey. You know you're hanging out with Kamala and prime ministers now. But this this podcast is about you know the progression puzzle. It's pulling things together for our listeners to empathise with and actually say, look, you know what, Jeffrey's gone through a little bit of adversity. He's pivoted his career. You've got something in common with Adele in terms of a school that you went to. So can you share that with our, our viewers, Mr. Humble Jeffrey? So yes, I was, uh, gosh, I attended the Brits Performing Arts School. I was one of the, I guess, founding initial students to go there um, 30 odd years ago. Gosh, long time. Um, and yeah, th that was one of the, I guess, defining moments of my personality, my journey, my drive, um, because I was in a school with, I gosh, I think probably like 200 kids, all of us wanting to be successful in some way in the entertainment industry. So everyone was very driven, very focused, very competitive. Um, and so a lot of that stays with you. But the beauty of it all was, though, everyone was really collaborative. So it's kind of that weird combination of, I want to be the best, but I'm going to collaborate with you. Um, and so a lot of people have gone there, obviously Adele, Amy Winehouse, Leanna Lewis, um, the girls from Flower Tree, Imogen Heap. Uh, yeah, a few people. So that, that, that's what I was searching for was a name drop. So you, you were in the, were you in the era of, of, of Damage, you know, Damage, the Spice Girls, sort of early 90s who flitted around that. So um, Jeffrey has, is looking at me and saying, look, let's move on now because he's a very humble man. But what I want our, our viewers and listeners to see is that 
Jeffrey is extremely focused, extremely determined. So to get into the Brit school isn't a case of, hey, I want to come into the Brit school. You had auditions. There's rejection. You had to, you know, you had to really be on top of your game. Now, did you come from a family of performers? Were, were, were you being pushed to that direction or was this just a calling for you, Jeffrey? Oh, no, not at all. No, I was not being pushed in that direction. So effectively, I, I wanted to, as I said, I always wanted to be in the music industry. I kind of decided that I wanted to do that probably around, I don't know, nine or 10. I was kind of, oh, I, want, I like doing this. I, I want to do that. So my parents were okay with me taking part in, you know, the, the school play and, from West London, there's the Yash Santua Centre, and I'd kind of gone there and been a part of various productions that they were doing on the weekends. But my parents were kind of pushing me to have a proper education and to do a proper job. Um, and so were all my aunts and uncles. Everyone was very invested in, you know, my fam- in our family, invested in all the kids that were in the family. So they were just like, well, it's fun that you want to sing and that you want to do these things, but you should have a backup plan. You shouldn't be just thinking that this is going to be the be all and end all. So then when I applied to the Brits, I remember my mum being like, well, that's not a proper school and you should go to a proper school and maybe just do voice lessons on the weekends. Like, why do you want to go there and do that full time? And I was just like, look, it's an opportunity that I'll never get again. Um, I didn't really, it's quite funny because I didn't talk to them about applying. I basically filled in the forms, got my teacher to help me, applied, did a video, did all the things I needed to do um, in school and then basically got an audition and then said to them, hey, I've got this audition for this school. It's in South London. Um, I'd have to travel there every day, but I really want to go. How, how old were you at this time, Jeffrey? Uh, I was 13. Yeah, 12, 13. And so then my dad said to my mum, look, he did this by himself. He didn't actually involve us in any of this. So he's actually made the decision. We should let him follow this through because he's obviously he obviously cares. So then my mum relented and I was able to go. But um, yeah, they weren't like, they were not the par- stage parents at all, no. Yeah, and, and this, this really resonates with me, not necessarily being a gifted um, singer and performer such as yourself, but um, growing up in, in London, I came up from a single parent background and there was a lot of kids like me who had to figure out stuff themselves in terms of, whether it was playing football. So I was a a schoolboy footballer at Chelsea. I had to leave North London to get all the way down to Heathrow Airport um, twice a week as a 12-year-old. And I think about that as a parent now and thinking, okay, my 12-year-old son, Aston, who's named after his great-grandfather, wants to go and pursue his dreams as as an artist. And I'm not there to support him. And you've just mentioned about the Brit school, and how many of your classmates had parents walking them through the application process, um, chaperoning them to auditions. So is that where you've got that independent streak from, Jeffrey, of, you know, focus on on the, the end goal for you? I think it's something that's innately within me. I've always been like that. I think... So one of my friends was saying, yeah, you're stubborn um, or you're aloof. I can't remember which one they're using to describe me. But I've just kind of been like, hey, I want to do good work. I want to be happy about what I'm doing. I want to, you know, make changes. Um, so I've just been always been driven by that. And I think the kind of get up and go uh, action was just kind of like, well, my parents were always kind of like, you know, life is short and you've got to try and be your best at what you do. You've got to, you 
believe in yourself and know that you're worthy of achieving whatever your heart's desire. Um, so just keep moving like that. So I think it was a combination of what my parents always told me. And I think the reason why I didn't say anything to them when I was applying wasn't because they weren't walking me through the process because they were helping me to get into other colleges. It was just that I really wanted to prove to them that I was taking it seriously because we kind of had this very much of a bar system in my household. So, um, you know, if I wanted something, I had to, you know, do something. It wasn't just nothing came for free. So if I wanted a new pair of trainers, I had to figure out how I was going to raise half the funds, even though they could have probably could have given me all the money. But I kind of then go and speak to all my aunts and uncles <laughs> and do odd jobs for them to to collect things and then had a paper round and all those things. So I've just kind of always been a working person who's been like look got things to do places to go people to see <laughs> really helpful and, and again it, very exciting now um i, I want to touch on um a couple of pieces of, of work that you've done um in terms of some short films published short stories before we start talking about your 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 more recent career within the dni space but can you just give our viewers and listeners just a, a, a brief process in terms of where these short films and and short stories came from yeah sure um so the short films i'm part of a collective called the one umbrella productions collective and effectively we're a group of guys that have kind of wanted to dabble in the film industry uh, a couple of guys actually work for really big um companies such as google and youtube and such and it was just like an idea that we were talking and it was a situation of well actually how do we get films made Maybe we just band together, we produce them, we all come together on a, on, you know, a number of weekends and work through this. So we've created uh, five short films now um, over the last three years. Um, a number of them have been in various festivals um, and won some awards. And, you know, the goal is that we're creating, I guess, uh, a narrative or stories that come from our experiences, but also, um, you know, from the different people that we partner with. So we've worked with female writers, female directors, and we're just bringing everyone together. It's just like an opportunity. Um, and yeah, as I said, that came from various conversations and people that I've met over the years. I produced a play uh, back in the day. Um, and one of the actors that was in it, we just stayed in touch and he kind of is the linchpin and brought everyone together, a guy called Jordan Pitt. Hey, Jordan. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how that came together. And then the, the short story that I wrote um, basically was a part of an anthology book called Black and Gay in the UK. Um, and it was talking about the, the black gay experience and what happens to us when we when we come out, when we, uh, you know, try and create families, where we try and find love and acceptance. What, what's the journey? And so there's a multitude of stories in the book, some good, some bad. Um, mine's a fictional story of a young guy coming out and his parents kind of asking him, oh, 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 are you friends with Peter Thatchell? And Peter Thatchell is a gay rights activist that, you know, is controversial to some, but has really kind of paved the way for a lot of the equality uh, that we now have in the gay, lesbian, trans community. So, um, yeah, that's kind of all the little creative bits that I get up to, I guess, whilst all having a, you know, corporate role. Thank you. You've worked with several fashion brands and, and fashion is so so closely linked with your identity. Maybe not today with the jumper you've chosen to wear, but broadly speaking, <laughs> you, you, you can be um, quite a fashionista. Can you talk to me about this in a personal context on how you bring your whole self to work? You, you've mentioned about some of your writings, your work. Um, 
this is called something you discussed one-on-one and, and how it was somewhat of a turning point for you professionally. Would really love for you to, to be able to sort of share your personal experiences and bringing yourself into work. It's a big topic, clearly. Yeah, I think um, it's quite funny, actually, because when I, so when I was in the music industry, obviously I could rock up to work in a tracksuit and, you know, do my job and no one kind of blinked an eye, you just kind of got on with things. And it was fascinating as I moved into more corporate roles that, you know, oh, you need to wear a suit, you need to wear a tie, you need to, I still can't tie a, 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 t- a um, tuxedo tie, I'm like awful. But it was kind of like finding all those moments where I had to kind of really dress up and wear suits and it really didn't feel authentic to me initially. Um, and I think what I had to do was kind of find my what kind of styles I like to kind of lean into that. But also how do I, for my own kind of, I don't know, sanity, dress it down a bit as well. So I don't feel like I'm always dressed so formally and a bit stiff. My styles progressed over the years as I've got older. I've lent into uh, obviously wearing suits and and thinking about different colours and how they, yeah, no, I'm waffling, sorry. No, you're you're not waffling. Look, I'm, so so I'm, I'm keen to take it back. What I'm trying to do, so with my listeners, we talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about um, bringing yourself to work. And when we spoke last week for the prep call, you gave me the example of, yeah, Michael, do you know what? When I started talking to HR, I thought I was smashing it out of the park. But they gave me 360 feedback. And it was one where they said, well, Jeffrey, so, so in music, did you feel when you were in that space, because you're in the Brit industry, you knew the, the social nuances of what's acceptable, what's taboo, were you comfortable operating in that space? I don't know. No, I wasn't. I was a child. I was like, you know, 19, 20, 20, you know, I was in my early 20s. So I was comfortable in the sense of I felt like I knew what I was doing work-wise and I, and I had passion and drive and obviously kind of like in a sense of what I wore and how I showed up I was myself but I think there was parts of my there was definitely parts of my identity that I hid so I did like you had to be really really close to me to know I was gay I wasn't going to just tell you like out of the bag I wouldn't talk about my life and be like oh yeah me and my husband and my son I, I do that now I wouldn't have done that then um in any shape way or form and I think the difference of being in the corporate environments versus the entertainment space it was like you know there was a moment of if you were passionate about the project, everyone was passionate about the project. So you were able to kind of bond in that way. I think it's a lot, it was a lot harder going into the kind of more corporate world that I've worked in and having to figure out how I bond with people um, to get the work done because it's not you're, not, you're not building this vision. You're not creating this. You're not sitting in the studio all together listening to people add different sounds and people playing instruments and the magic of it all so it's very different and I think you know I know I shared this with you when I started working in the kind of especially at Thomson Reuters I really enjoyed my job I really enjoyed my team and I thought I was doing you know great work and then I ended up on this amazing leadership program and a part of that I had to get um 360 feedback and one of the you know bits of feedback I got was we just you know we, we, we all like you and you're all really great at what you do but we don't know you and I was like, what do you mean you don't know me? Like, I tell you what I got up to this weekend. But then I kind of reflected and I realized I did edit. I did like, I, and I did go like, oh, you're, I don't know, it was bank holiday, August bank holiday weekend. Did I tell everyone that I went to carnival? No, I probably didn't. I'd just say, oh, I just was out with some friends, which is obviously very vague. 
And I then had to sit back and think, okay, what am I, what am I editing? What am I removing? And how is that hindering my progression here? Because I've kind of always wanted to pride myself on being authentically me. And I realized I wasn't, I was changing who I was. So that was a bit of a, that was very much a wake up call. And it was a moment that I then had to reflect and say, well, actually, who are you, Jeffrey? And it was, well, I'm a black man. I'm a black gay man. I'm of a certain age. I grew up in and was born and raised in the UK. So I understand a lot of references that are being discussed at work. But then I have my own references. And maybe what I should be doing is sharing those references. And at the time, I wasn't working in diversity. And I think that was also a moment where maybe I started to think a bit more about inclusion and difference and equity and and I guess why I needed to change my way instead of people just asking me the questions they wanted the answers to. So it became that kind of conversation as well I had. And then I had a really good chat with my boss at the time. And I said to him, you know, I'm not an open book. I, you know, I feel like I need to trust people before I start sharing bits about myself. But I also want everyone to know that I appreciate, I do, I think I let my team know and the people I work with, my peers know, I appreciate them. So I guess, you know, what would you think I should do differently? And we just had a chat about it. And it was really like, you know, you can talk about your weekend a bit more. And, you know, we we appreciate you and we want you to we want to know that you're happy. Um, because you sometimes you come across like you're not. So it was just that very interesting moments to kind of have that reflection. And then I guess, you know, moving forward from that, it was then a point of, yeah, I shared that I went to Carnival, I shared that I was going to get married when I was going to get married, that I was marrying a man, you know, all those bits. I kind of was just uh, slowly <laughs> a bit more open. Yeah, and, and, and that, and it really resonates with me and, and I'm sure it'll resonate to um, many of our listeners and viewers around bringing your authentic self to work. And, you know, it's a buzzword that so many people talk about, certainly over the last couple of years. And I remember the moment that that impacted me was maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I was working for um, a firm called Rogers Burnson, which is, you know, one of the biggest executive search firms in the UK. And I was assigned a coach. I was very much a, a one man band in the sense of a lone wolf because I, I never shared um, what I did at the weekend. Um, I tried to assimilate a little bit more to my colleagues who predominantly came from a, uh, a wealthy, private educated background. So I pivoted and tried to reflect their interests, which weren't really um, mine. So I didn't come across as authentic. And I remember my coach feeding back to me and he just said, look, Michael, if you wanna be free, You've just got to be yourself. And in life, you can't please everyone. And I remember that the thing that I did is I took all of my partners in my city office to Cotton's Restaurant, which is in North London, great Caribbean food. And from that moment onwards, I can see a relief from them because they could see that I was more relaxed and the conversations we had moving forward, the ability to collaborate on, on projects, to talk about passions around travel and food really made a profound difference. But it was an iterative process. It does take time. So again, I really appreciate you sharing those experiences there. 
it's a, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely is. And look, I want to sort of um, move on to a couple more points, and 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 we've got about ten minutes left of the podcast. Um, when we think about diversity, um, and it tends to be the traditional focus on race, ethnicity, and gender, we often overlook certain areas, including neurodiversity. As someone who's dyslexic, can you talk to me about your experiences? and how you have to navigate any challenges or misconceptions that you have encountered. Yeah, um, so I think the challenge comes in two ways. It comes in the fact that, you know, we live growing up in the West, you write in English, there's an expectation to, you know, use grammar and structure sentences and, and do things in a very specific way. And I think being dyslexic, there are times where my brain is moving a mile a minute and I'm not going to do that. And I'm not great at it. It doesn't, it's not something that I've, I learned, well, I learned at school, but I wasn't great. I'm not good at it. So it's kind of that perception of sometimes people thinking, seeing the written form is like, you know, oh, is this kid, this person stupid? Like, why, what, what does this mean? This doesn't make any sense. Um, and then it's also that piece of me telling people. So I think when I was in music, I worked for a very, very small business. Um, literally it was, uh, four of us at one point so I just said to the team oh yeah I'm not going to be great at writing stuff so I can write it but then someone needs to re- review it and edit it and actually that person is still in my life who edits and reviews my stuff and she's still doing that so it's it's great but at work I remember again thinking about career and stuff there was a moment where I literally when I first started at Thompson Waiters and I was doing a more junior role and effectively it was um, end of year again and got some feedback you know great really appreciate the work that you're doing all the projects that you set up went really well but your attention to detail is really bad and you know there was moments where things fell through the cracks that we would at the level that you've been operating at were surprised that those fell through the cracks so you know we're going to give you a uh you know a met but you would have gotten exceeded if you'd done the da 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 and I kind of walked away from that meeting really deflated because I'd worked really hard. It was a new industry for me. I'd been kind of really nervous about going into such a corporate role um, and didn't think I would belong. And then I kind of walked into this amazing team where I got to do a lot of things. And so I kind of walked away and I came home and I think I was talking to my sister and she said, well, did you tell them that you're dyslexic? Because that's a disability. Um, and that means they should accommodate you. And I was like, well, no. She's like you're working for this big multinational business. Like they, I'm sure there's other people there that need that support. Speak up. So I went in and I said to my boss, can I talk to you about my end of year review? Um, and and she said, yeah, sure, of course, have a chat. And I said to her, look, I take your feedback on. I know I dropped the ball on certain things, but I guess the reason why is because I'm dyslexic and I hadn't said that to you. I do have a report that tells you what my dyslexia is, how it shows up. I can give that to you. And she was like, Oh, why didn't you tell us? Let's do a ad. Have you had an adult uh, assessment? And I was like, no. She's like, okay, well, we'll do your adult assessment. And then effectively, she just got me a whole bunch of tools, which half of them I was like, I don't need all of this. But it was really good. She kind of stepped in. She got me a bunch of tools. She supported me. She kind of asked questions. Um, also, she kind of took some of the things that weren't my kind of skill set or really solid things in my wheelhouse. She took them away from me and gave them to someone else who it was in their wheelhouse. Um, so I think the the journey's been, again, a journey. It's been hard. I haven't always been proud to tell people that I was dyslexic. I haven't always been happy about having a disability. It's been 
difficult being a black man with it, a black person, because sometimes it's that feeling of, do they think I'm stupid because that's how the world is designed to view black people? Um, so that's kind of inner dialogue that's going on as well. But I think, again, going back to the authenticity piece, I know that I needed to, after my sister kind of challenged me, um, it was that piece of actually, if I want to take my career seriously, I've just got to kind of ask for what I want and what I need. And I had done that in my teens, but somewhat, somehow I wasn't doing that in my 20s, early 30s. Um, so it was that kind of reminder to go back and ask for what you need and what you want. Can I just, just interject for, for a moment? Because my, my mind's racing uh, at the moment. And, and, and thank you for really sharing these experiences with, with myself and the viewers and listeners. What you're talking about, there are parts which are really sort of touching me and resonating because the biggest piece that I have is I'm six foot two, I'm, I'm, I'm black, and going into a meeting for the first time, I'm thinking, okay, I'm meeting a board which are predominantly white executives. This is a few years ago. I've got to manage being a black man in that room and how I navigate that. Um, but also the broader workplace. So what I would do is if I was meeting a client for the first time, they happen to be a, a white woman um, who was smaller, I would soften my voice and, and try and make myself smaller and softer. But being a black gay man with dyslexia, you look at that and think, bloody heck, how how... How did you navigate that walking into that same meeting room? Because there are so many, that's times three than what I was having to sort of go through in terms of that. So how did you manage that complex balance? Well, I, 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 well all the research says that, you know, the gay part softens, <laughs> softens the black part, um, which is, you know, there's, there's research out there that says that. So that's, that's, I guess, the reality. I don't know. Like, but then I... I do feel like obviously coming from the spaces I did growing up in West London, it was, it was I grew up in the melting pot. It was just always a multitude of people from different backgrounds and different um, races around me. So I don't know if I've always worried about my blackness in certain spaces as much as I've worried about my dyslexia. I think my dyslexia was more my thing that I was worried about. Also, I know that you know this, my parents are Rastafarians, so I grew up very much centred in, I don't know, peace and respect and, you know, tolerance and also the peace of, as I said earlier on, just be trying to be Jeffrey, don't try and be anyone else because there's only one you. So, and I grew up in that environment. So I've always kind of lent into that. And I think, you know, you have your ebbs and your flows in your, I guess in your mental health and your psyche throughout your journey and there were moments where just the I guess the whole kind of uh, gay part of my identity was really hard to to deal with and then there was also the bit where dyslexia bit was really hard to deal with I've always known I was a black man I was I was always different because I was the kid with dreadlocks so I always knew about being different and standing out from a very young age so that didn't necessarily bother me in the same way um but I, as I said, it's a journey and I had to reflect and have therapy and talk to people about who I was and how I navigated various spaces. And I think, you know, that's the bit that we all need to do. It's to have those conversations and to reflect and and to be honest with ourselves as well. Like how how great did you do at that moment? And, and not in a sense that you're berating yourself, but you're reflecting on what could I have done differently? Or was I really, you know, me? Was I really Jeffrey? Or did I succumb to 
peer pressure or to the voices in my head. Jeffrey, we come to the end of, of this podcast, and, I, and I'm sure our, uh, our viewers and listeners would agree that they could listen to this for another hour. Um, but I want to ask three very quick questions, um, and, and hopefully we'll be able to sort of close out in time. Who were your mentors growing up, uh, or whether it's in your personal life or corporate, but who were your mentors who gave you that center to, to be able to give you that identity of who you are? And talk to me about the importance of having that mentor. There's been a combination of people. I'd say my dad and my uncle Andrew um, and my uncle Wilson, they definitely were my mentors, my champions and my challengers. Um, and again, I could talk about them for hours, but yeah, uh, those individuals. And then I think in my corporate career, I, I would say again, um, a lot of the people I reported to, so Andy McGovern, Livia Conkle, Earthia Dinsey, Flores, and then um, our CPO at Thompson Waters, Peter Warwick, he kind of really pushed me to lean into the work I was doing in the DNI space and really kind of take ownership and urgency of what I was doing. So, yeah, I think, and, and there's so many other people. Like I've been, I, I would say to everyone, I've been blessed. I've been surrounded by phenomenal people like yourself who have just kind of like stepped in at moments where I've needed support, needed guidance, needed a voice um, to push me forward. So. Yeah, I, I, I always say to everyone, I'm a little bit charmed in that respect. But yeah, I have a community, I have a village. And, and what advice would you give to yourself as an 18-year-old, Jeffrey, in terms of navigating life, the city? What would that be? Um, the advice I'd give to myself was the... Because I had a very strong vision at that age. The vision that you set yourself doesn't necessarily play out to be the the ultimate road you walk and there's nothing wrong in that lean into the journey lean into the, the road that you're going to go down because it leads to something fantastic and even at the moments where you think you failed you've learned so much so embrace that this is the last question um, of the podcast and, and we've spoken about a multitude of, of things today the brit school dealing with adversity, having a focus, mentors. Your, your life has been so broad and so rich with some of your experiences. But I want to close out on this. Um, you know, fashion, including some of the brands you have worked for, can signify rebellion and self-expression. The fact that you can't do up a bow tie, we'll have to work on that. Um, how do you relate to this? And what is the most rebellious thing that you have done that you can share with us? Um, so I think, gosh, lots of points of rebellion. But I think that the first thing that I did that was really rebellious was chopping all my dreadlocks off at 13. So I said to my parents, I want out. I don't want to be a raster, which I kind of, it's still ingrained in me, so I still am. But I didn't want to have the signifier. And um, they were so disappointed. But it was just an act of defining my independence. So I went to I basically got my mum shot them all off went to the barbers and got the bobby brown gumby and was very proud of myself um, <laughs> for doing that um and um <laughs> but there yeah, that was my first act of rebellion defining jeffrey creating my own space and having my own voice i think on on that note i would like to say a sincere heartfelt thank you for jeffrey williams of Dr. Martins for joining us today. 
sharing his personal experiences and bringing his complete self to work. I really would recommend all of our listeners and viewers, if you have questions, to reach out to myself or Jeffrey via LinkedIn. Um, I hope you have got so much from this podcast today, The Progression Puzzle, and I very much look forward to the next session. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Progression Puzzle, brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. If you enjoyed this episode, which I truly hope you have, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For more information on how Barron's Inhibits can help you to maximize the power of difference, head over to www.barrentinhibit.com. Join us next time for more pieces of the progression puzzle.